Well, kids, thank you so much for worshiping with us. You are good to go. You're, the sign is up in the back. And as the kids head out, I'm actually going to invite you to stand again as we read our text this morning. If you have your Matthew journals, you can find the text on week four, uh, page 16. Um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter three. If you want one of these journals and you don't have one, we still have them up front at the, the front desk on your way out. Um, but you can also follow along with us on the screens or, or in your Bible. So we're going to be in Matthew 3. We're going to actually read through the whole chapter. So people of God, I want to invite you to listen to God's words from Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Yet people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. This is God's word. You may be seated. La Luna, La Luna, hopping up and down in her car seat, my oldest, Lucia, probably every day, would, would scream out and point, Daddy, la luna, la luna. She had this uncanny ability to always be able to find the moon, even if it was in the middle of the afternoon. And I would say to her, sweetie, it's, it's the day that there's no moon out there. And every time I would turn around and be proven wrong, somehow she had seen the moon, the faint outline in the sky. It excited her every time. But as I was thinking about it this week, there's something, uh, and, and reminiscing on that story, because now she's five years old and she doesn't really do that that often, there's, there's something strange, there's something beautiful, there's something mysterious about the moon. I, I don't know if you know this, but unlike the sun, the moon actually doesn't produce its own light. It only reflects the light of a, of a bigger and much greater source. It cannot produce its own light. It, 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 whether it's mid-afternoon or midnight, the moon glows not with its own light, but with the light of another. And this morning, we step back into the story of the Gospel of Matthew that we've been in, and we encounter both a moon and a sun. A man who, by his own testimony, is only a reflection of and pointer to a much greater light, 
And the God-man, who over two decades after the massacre in Bethlehem that we read about last week, shines the light of the good news of salvation beginning at a river outside of Jerusalem. You see, if you were tracking with the story, moving into chapter 3 is a surprise because hope did not fade alongside the wails of Bethlehem. No, hope is alive and the heart of hope beats from the most unlikely of places, the wasteland of the wilderness. In our text this morning, Matthew transports us to a scene that feels a lot more Old Testament than New Testament, with prophets bordering on insanity and visions of God that seem like they're impossible. But what is possible for us is more than possible for God, and in this chapter, God breaks his 400 years of silence, not with wrath, but actually testifying to his son, speaking from heaven to his people. So I want to invite you into the story of Matthew 3 by directing your attention to both the moon and the sun, the two people, the source of light and its reflection. And here's how we're going to walk through this this text. We're going to start with the prophet who prepares the way, this, this John the Baptist, who was a bright light in the darkness of the wilderness, but only because he is glowing, reflecting, and pointing to the one who comes after him. And then we'll focus our attention on the Savior who walks the path, the greater light whose time has finally come, and whose gospel ministry starts with this, this Trinitarian testimony and a, a retracing and rewriting of an ancient story. The prophet who prepares the way and the Savior who walks the path. And so as we step into the scene, I want you to look out for this prophet who is introducing the kingdom we've been waiting for and the Savior we've been longing for. And Matthew starts the scene of his testimony like this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. You see, a man is emerging from the wilderness, the the, the desert, not silently, but sounding an alarm. And his voice echoes with the voices of all the prophets who came before him. You see, up until this point in the story, Matthew has been quoting Old Testament prophets, but now it's almost as if the prophets of old have come crashing into the story through the person and preaching of a man named John. And so even as we're watching this scene, we might... want to get close, but not too close, because we might remember, if there's one thing to remember about prophets, it's that they're a little bit crazy and a lot of bit scary. And so Matthew tells us that John preaches in this empty and dangerous place known as the wilderness of Judea, where more than one Old Testament prophet called home. And and not only that, but John's clothes, they they were made of camel's hair. He's wearing a leather belt around his waist, and his food is locusts and wild honey. From From where he's preaching to how he's dressed, to what he's eating, to even what he's preaching, John is in many ways, as one scholar writes, cut from the same cloth as the prophets of old. Excitement, even if a little bit of fear might be running through the people of God as they're streaming out of the cities to come see this man, to hear him, to to repent. They have seen imposters and deceivers come and go before, but the man that stands in front of them looks like, sounds like, even smells like the prophets that they might have heard stories about their whole lives. The stories that they heard have come to life before them and stepped out of the scroll and into this river, and they can hardly believe what's happening. God has been silent for so long. Finally, he's speaking. Maybe we should be listening. This is why Matthew clarifies that not only is this man a prophet, but he is someone that the prophets spoke about. Verse 3 tells us, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. You see, God made good on his promise in Isaiah to send another prophet, another voice who who calls out in the wilderness. And and unlike the people of God in the days of Isaiah and so many of the other prophets, maybe this time the people of God would listen to the voice of God. You see, John the Baptist is not just some traveling preacher. He's not just a, a revolutionary. 
He's not just a teacher trying to, to, to gather followers. He is a voice, the voice who calls out of darkness and gets things ready for the one who is coming. Listen to the second half of that prophecy. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. In the days of John, if someone important, like a king, was coming to town, there would be a messenger that would be dispatched, would be sent ahead so that the visit would not be a surprise to this village, this town, this city, so people could get ready. And one of the things that they would get ready were the roads to the city. They would, they would fill in the, the potholes. They would, they would smooth out the bumps. They would prepare the way for the king's caravans as he was coming to the city. You see, John is a messenger. He's not the king. He's not the Messiah. He is the one who sent ahead to smooth out the road to prepare the way for the king. But, but John is not dealing with potholes and bumps. He's dealing with sin and repentance. This is how John prepares the way. Look at verse 2. He's preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. The king is approaching. His kingdom is approaching. And John commands everyone listening to repent. And he explains why. Because the kingdom is at hand. Now, this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that we've actually heard the words, the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you've been tracking with us since we started this series, we've already shown our cards, right? Matthew is the gospel that we, we, we call this series the, the king and his kingdom. It's the gospel. It's the story, the account of the king and his kingdom and what happens when, and when his kingdom showed up, when the king set foot on earth, this, this royal son born from the line of David who existed before time began as the divine son of God. This is, this is the story of, the, of his entrance into the world. But that story seemed to end at the end of chapter 2 in darkness and obscurity with the family that's hiding out in Nazareth. But decades later, the time has finally come for hiding in obscurity to be a thing of the past. And the time has come for preparation. Preparation for the kingdom of God. And this is the first time we hear explicitly that God's kingdom is coming. We've gotten hints of it. Right? David and Abraham and, 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 and the, the genealogy coming down and, and, and prophecies being made. The rest of this gospel is going to be unpacking this reality, and it'll be unpacked in the person, the work, and the preaching of Jesus. But right here at the beginning, the first time we hear this phrase, I want to anchor us with the definition of what in the world this kingdom of God is, because a lot of people have a lot of different ways to describe this. One of the definitions, one of the simplest definitions that I love is one of my favorite theologians. He gave Graham Goldsworthy. He, he simply defines the kingdom of God as God's people in God's place under God's rule. A people who belong to God, who live in outright and public devotion to the rule of God, who acknowledge him as king with what they say and what they do in God's place, God's space. If you read through the story of the Old Testament, the, the Bible talks of, of a promised land, right, of, of a nation that has borders and is located in physical space. But, but if you also track with the story, the work of God has always been that those, those borders would not be closed, but would actually be open invitations for anyone to become part of the people of God. And this is why in the New Testament, we talk of a kingdom that rushes past nationalities and ethnicities and past borders and boundaries to establish God's kingdom wherever God's people live under God's rule. The New Testament calls this the church. It's why at times I have called us an outpost of new creation life. Because wherever God's church is gathered, wherever God's rule is acknowledged as a body, as a family, we are communicating God's kingdom making it that God's space. 
Now, John the Baptist didn't know this when he was preaching. He didn't know all of God's plan when he was saying that the kingdom of heaven has come near, but he knew the God behind that plan. He trusted the plan of his God, whatever it was and however it would come, and so he was preparing the way by preparing the people by calling them to repent. And John's message might be ringing in our ears just like it rang in the ears of the people that are listening to him because that word repentance might be as strange to us as it was to them, strange as it is familiar Strange because we are, uh, if we're honest, proud people who are being told to turn, to admit that you are wrong, to change. You see, repentance is an act that requires true humility. You have to actually be able to say that you were wrong. But it was a familiar message, at least to the audience of John. Verse 5 says that people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. And they're familiar with this message because this is what they have been waiting for, hoping for. The people of God, after hundreds of years of silence from God, living in the oppressive grip of this Roman Empire, they never forgot why all of this was happening. They were in exile. They were being punished for their disobedience to God. They had not obeyed, they had not done what God said, and they gave up their right to God's blessing because of it. But like the prophets reminded them over and over again, everything could be made right again through repentance by turning back to God, by by humbling and admitting their sin and trusting in him and his ways, following his paths to life. And right now, that path is leading them to a preacher out in the wilderness, a, a prophet that's echoing the words of the prophets of old. Could this be true? Away from the temple and at the shore of the Jordan River, they gather, and the text explains they are confessing their sins, and they are being baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, this story, this scene might be familiar to some of us, and I actually think it's too easy to speed past this moment in the story and miss out on just how radical this moment is. But what John is preaching is radical. Yes, he's talking about the kingdom of God coming near, but what he is doing in his ministry of baptism is even crazier than what he was saying. Let me explain what I mean. Culturally and historically, baptism during this time was used as a ritual among God's people for non-Jewish people to become Jewish. In other words, it was an experience that was reserved for Gentiles alone to become Jewish. And yet John is baptizing people who are already biologically Jewish. They are part of the people of God physically. But by this baptism, he is saying that without repentance, we are all spiritually not God's people. We are all spiritually Gentiles. The people of God are not defined by biology but by repentance, by humility and faith that expresses itself in loyalty to God above everything else through the act of repentance, by by confessing their sins. Now, I've used the word probably a hundred times by now, so what in the world is repentance? Well, the text gives us a clear picture of what that is. It is a turning away from sin and a turning towards God. It is agreeing with God. It is declaring that what he says is true, that we are sinners and that that sin deserves to be punished. It is seeing ourselves as we are. There's a letter that's written by another John. It was a very common name, kind of like Eric. And it's a letter that's written by this other John, one of Jesus' disciples. And he, re- he, he says this in the first chapter. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Confession is admitting that we have sinned 
and actually believing that he is faithful and just and will forgive us like he says he will. That he will purify, he will cleanse us, he will make us clean again. True repentance requires true confession, and true confession requires that we see ourselves truly. True repentance requires true confession, and true confession requires that we see ourselves truly, not as worthless, but as sinful and as pursued by the God who loves us. John the Baptist, this this prophet in the wilderness, is preparing the way for the king who is coming, the kingdom that draws near by calling people to repentance, to realizing that they are not as clean as they think they are, that their DNA is not clean enough, their obedience to the law is not clean enough, that in humility they need to admit their sin to the God who made them, the holy God who draws near. And this is why John's preaching takes on a very different tone when two particular groups of people approach him. Verse 7 tells us, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, pause. In the same way that this text first introduces us to the kingdom of heaven, it also introduces us for the first time here to these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These, these two groups that, they, that, that hated each other, but as the story unfolds, will hate Jesus more than they hate each other, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. But these Pharisees and these Sadducees, they approach John not to repent, but to inspect, to find out what he's doing. They're not here to escape judgment. They are here to judge, to find out what's happening at the waters of the Jordan. And and if you track with the story, this is their MO. This is the way that they operate. We're going to be seeing them do this over and over and over again in the story, eventually moving from curiosity to concern to anger, eventually to murder. But for right now, they're not coming to kill. They're coming just to see But John sees past their surface and calls them on their hypocrisy. He tells them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Admittedly, it's not the kindest or most respectful way to speak to religious leaders. But admittedly, they weren't the kindest or most respected kind of people. He calls them vipers. Snakes, but not just snakes, he calls them a brood, a family of young snakes, the offspring of snakes, people who follow in the the footsteps of hypocrisy, if you will, saying one thing but doing another, which is why John tells them to produce fruit, fruit that proves repentance and loyalty to the God you say you serve. Repentance is not just about confession, it's not just about getting baptized even, it is about bearing fruit. Repentance is not just saying God's right or putting on a show for God, but living a life for God. And John calls out those who should be modeling that best for the people of God. And yet what we'll see from these characters throughout the rest of the story is that there's something that just keeps them from repentance. Something that that, that makes them think they don't have to repent. One scholar puts it like this. He says, the greatest obstacle to genuine repentance is found in those who somewhere got just enough religion to be inoculated against its further demands. It's almost as if their religious rituals protect them from, insulate them from the demands of an actual relationship with God. And somewhere along the way, there are many of us who get just enough to believe that if we say the right things and believe the right doctrines, we don't really have to mess with the whole change your life kind of thing. John is telling these religious leaders, and I think also telling us, live like you believe what you say you believe. 
produce fruit in keeping with repentance. If you've really turned, that will show. And his challenge hangs in the air with images of baby snakes and fruit-bearing trees as the religious leaders are trying to think of a, a few snappy comebacks because you don't talk to me like that way. But before they can get a word out, John hits them again. The text says, do not think you can say to yourselves that, well, we have, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. This is what's so radical about what John is doing, this baptism John is calling people to. He's telling the people of God that, that God's people are not something you just inherit. It's something you need to be living into generation by generation. In other words, the people of God are not defined by physical lineage, but by spiritual renewal. And John, in his provocative way that he is known for, anticipates the self-justification of these leaders, these appeals to Abraham, and he shuts it down. Listen, you think your DNA is going to save you? God can make these stones into children for Abraham. He's not, God's not in some kind of catch-22 because the blood of Abraham flows through your veins. As one commentator writes, God has no grandchildren. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home. It doesn't matter that you know how to say the right things, that you have a ton of memory verses that are, that are at the ready, that you are good at, quote-unquote, doing church. What matters is what your life says you believe. Do you believe that Jesus is king? Do you believe that you are who he says you are? Made in his image, broken by sin. Do you believe that his death and resurrection counts for you, for your punishment, and gives you life? Well, then prove that belief, not just by living righteously, but by living a life of repentance. Now, here's where I think we actually get so off-centered when we hear verses like this, this chapter. When we hear that we, we distort the message of the kingdom. Look at what John says in verse 10. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And I'll admit, this looks and sounds like judgment. Right? God is about to chop this thing down. Any tree that does not bear good fruit, fruit that keeps with repentance, will not only be chopped down, but will be burned up. We read that, and we think that that means everyone who does not live righteously. Full stop. But if we do that, we miss what John has been talking about this whole time. Yes, it is about righteous living. After all, repentance means you are turning away from sin, but it also means turning towards God. Righteous living is repentant living. Now, as I kind of dive into this topic, I want to acknowledge from the beginning that repentance is a really big topic that the Bible talks a lot about. So we're not going to have time to talk about everything unless you want to hang around for another three hours and we can talk about that. I don't imagine you do. But one thing I do want to focus on is that, that, that repentance, and I think this is a surprise of the passage, repentance is not just a one-time thing. It is, it is proven not by a moment, but by a life. Now, this past week, uh, I heard a great illustration that I, I think will bring this to life. I want to show you this clip. It, it's from Melissa Duncan, our community life associate director. She runs our groups and our, and our outreach here. Uh, it's in a longer video about repentance. I want to encourage you to, to, to catch that this week. We're going to post it on our YouTube page. But I want you to hear how she illustrates repentance. And I, I think it really captures the reality of a life of repentance. Take a look. So when my husband and I lived overseas and we lived in this really remote area, we had to draw our own water. So the way we would clean ourselves was by like pouring water uh, from 
from a pot this size over our heads, over our bodies and just scrubbing the best that we could. And, uh, I would get clean, but still like my hair would be full of sand, but you know, I, I bathed, I was clean. And then we would go once a month into the regional, uh, the biggest city regionally near us and we would stay with friends and they had running water that was like, you could get it for like four minutes of an actual shower. And so we would shower and actually have running water and be like, I can't believe I thought I was clean before. Like all this sand just like coming off of us and we just felt so clean. But then we would go like every six months into the capital city and stay in a hotel that was like a real, had the fancy soaps, it had hot water and you could just shower for as long as it took and just really like wash your hair. And I remember the water would just be like reddish tinted because it was just, we lived in an area that was red sand. And as it like came out of my hair and I stepped out of there and would just be like, I can't believe I ever thought I was clean before this moment. I have never been clean before this moment. (laughs) And that's kind of like what our, what our, what our walk is with Jesus. As I get closer to Jesus, as I mature as a believer, there are going to be new things that I'm going to need to repent from, but I'm going to be continually led into these new, new areas to develop and grow as I'm walking with the Lord, as I'm being discipled. And I think that that's just kind of an analogy for repentance and this ongoing state of repentance that we kind of live in. It's not just once and then done. It's ongoing and it's part of the relationship that we're in. Did you catch what she said? When we first come to know Jesus, we repent, right? We turn back from our life of sin. We trust in him, not just with our words, but with our whole lives. We believe that what he did on the cross actually counts for us and takes our place. That's what theologians call justification. We are justified. We are made right with God. But the Christian life is not just a once-for-all repentance. What Melissa is illustrating through her story is that there are... uh, progressive realizations of becoming more and more clean. It's what the, the reform Martin Luther wrote when he explained, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's what theologians call sanctification. It's not just one time. It's over and over again. It's an entire life. Why? Because even though we've been made right, we are still growing into our righteousness. We are still sinners, but we are no longer dead in sin. We are alive in Jesus, and we are still growing into Jesus. And we grow through repentance, demonstrating our life of loyalty to Jesus every time that we agree with him and say, Jesus, yep, I messed up again. That's sin. I'm not even going to pretend that it's not. Please forgive me. Please continue to help me to say no to sin and yes to you, to the life that you have for me, a life of truth and, and, and righteousness and love. Look at our text. John is describing judgment. It's, it's scary judgment, right? Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit will be cut down and burned up. But the way that John is preparing the rest in, the, in this passage, the way he is preparing us is not a, a fix-your-up kind of repentance, but a true confession where we finally admit that we can't fix ourselves, that we need a Savior. There is one who is coming after me. This isn't all there is. You don't just do this baptism repentance and you're good. We need a Savior who does what we can't. The prophet prepares the way by calling people to humble repentance, but it is this Savior who's actually walking the path that enables repentance by giving up his life. 
Listen to John as he turns from the Pharisees and Sadducees to address the crowds in verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There is someone coming, John says, whose power is greater, whose identity is better, whose baptism is deeper than what you are looking at right now. Almost as if he's turning to the Jordan, he says, hey, listen, this water, it's a symbol for repentance, but, but, but what's coming is, is not just water, but the spirit and fire, which is not just about repentance, but about renewal. He will not just turn you away from sin and back to him, he will renew you from the inside out. He will change everything about you. And then John does paint a word picture, a word picture of judgment, this farmer with this winnowing fork, which was this, this large tool that farmers would take what was, what was harvested, and they would, would toss it up into the wind, and the, the, the stuff that was lighter, the shells, the things that, that you don't really want to eat, would get picked up by the wind, and, and it's called the chaff, the empty stuff that has no life in it, it's blown away, and the wheat that's heavier, the stuff that's filled with life, meant to give life as food, falls to the ground. And this farmer would gather that, and then the chaff would be burned. But we know he's not just making an illustration, right? He's trying to explain a theological point because he says that the, the chaff will not just be burned once for all, but, but forever. This is a, a, an image of judgment. And as terrible as this word picture is, it's just as terrible as this tree being cut down. But I want us to see that this judgment is not reserved just for the unrighteous. It's for the unrepentant. Because if you think about it, we are all unrighteous. There's only one who is righteous, the one who John says is approaching. Our death sentence is not just for our unrighteousness, it is for our unrepentance. Do you see that? Because even though our unrighteousness deserves to be punished, even though our unrighteousness is rebellion against the king, the problem is not just that we keep going in our unrighteousness, but that we keep going even when he has offered us another way. A way that starts with repentance and leads to life. A way that's opened up by the one who comes from Galilee to the Jordan to, as verse 13 says, be baptized by John. I want you to watch as the words of judgment ring in the ears of the crowd and then the just judge of the world walks up to John, not in judgment, not to separate the wheat from the chaff, not to cut down a tree, not yet, not now. No, he walks up to be baptized, which should be really surprising if we know who this is. And lo and behold, John refuses, which, who refuses Jesus? He's not trying to do it out of pride. He's out of humility, right? John tried to deter him. I, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? And Jesus' reply calms him down and says, listen, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So John consented. John recognizes something in Jesus that makes him do a 180 from what he's been preaching, right? He's been preaching to a crowd that's in need of repentance like he was. And then he comes face to face with the one who is righteous and needs no repentance. But even as he argues and tries to fight it, Jesus tells him that his baptism is proper because it fulfills all righteousness. What is going on here? What is this about? We know from other places in Scripture that Jesus had no sin from which he needed to repent or turn. 
2 Corinthians 5.21, we read this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. No, what is happening here, I think, is that God has planned it this way before even John was born. There would be a prophet who would prepare the way and the Savior who would walk the path. Repentance would be preached, salvation would be accomplished, and Jesus is now following this path that is laid out for him. This is the plan. This has always been the plan. Why? Because of what happens next. Look at the last two verses of our chapter. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven spoke. Jesus goes down in the waters and comes up dripping wet and the heavens open up in testimony. The Holy Spirit in some mysterious but but dove-like way identifies Jesus and the voice of the Father confirms Jesus' identity. The testimony of heaven, the testimony of the Trinity, of God himself echoes in this moment, identifying Jesus not just as the Messiah that we read in chapter 1 verse 1, not just the son of Abraham, not just the son of David, but the very son of God. And what did heaven say? This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The son of God in human form, loved by the father, pleasing to the father. This is who rises from the waters, not not of repentance, but the waters of identification, identifying him as the son, the beloved son of God, pleasing to God, acceptable to God, righteous, on a mission to make the unrighteous into the righteous by taking on our unrighteousness by walking the path that's laid out for him. Now, you might be wondering, Eric, why do you keep saying that? Walking the path that's laid out for him, is that just some fancy preacher talk that just kind of made sense and was poetic? I want to show you something. I want you to see that what Jesus is doing, the path that he's walking, is not a new path of salvation, but actually a well-worn path, a path that the people of God have walked over and over again in their disobedience, a path that you and I have walked over and over again in our disobedience. But now is the path that Jesus walks, retracing our steps of disobedience with his steps of obedience. You see, even in Jesus' life, he's preaching the good news of salvation, and he is reliving the story of Israel's disobedience and rewriting it with his obedience. Let me show you what I mean. The story of the people of God, if you're reading through the Old Testament, has all kinds of twists and turns. But there's one experience that shows up over and over again. The prophets pointed to it over and over again, and it's the Exodus. Last week, Pastor Brent talked about Jesus and he called him the new Exodus. Why? Because in that chapter, Jesus actually flees to Egypt, but he actually is called out of Egypt by God. Jesus is a new, a better Exodus because he's a a, a kind of freedom that's not just from physical slavery, but from spiritual slavery. But Jesus didn't just testify to this, his life shows it. He relived this. He retraced the steps of Israel as his family flees to Egypt and then is called out by God from Egypt. In a sense, Jesus is reliving the exodus in his own life when he does that. But if you remember that story, after the people escape Egypt, they run into a huge obstacle known as the Red Sea. The the raging army of Pharaoh is approaching them from behind, and then God performs a miracle, right? He, He parts the waters and leads his people through the Red Sea. And once his people are safely on dry land, he judges the armies of Pharaoh. Let's the water come back to where it was. He kills them in punishment for their sins. What if I told you that Jesus is reliving this in his baptism? Now you might be like, Eric, that's, uh, you're kind of turned around. You're just saying a bunch of things. Water, water, it's not the same thing. Well, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul actually calls Israel's crossing of the Red Sea a kind of baptism. 
and he uses that word. Jesus reenacts this moment in Israel's history by being baptized, but instead of God's enemies being judged, punished, and killed, it is God's son who will be judged, punished, and killed. Taking our sins on himself. He's not being baptized to be cleansed from his sin. No, in his baptism, he is identifying with sinners. He is practicing what the cross will accomplish. It's not that he needed to be cleansed from sin, but that he would be the one taking on our sins so that we might actually be cleansed. But if I may dip into next week, the retracing of the story doesn't end there. That's why I put the third one up there because Israel's story continues into chapter four because next week Jesus enters the wilderness that John is preaching from with the testimony of his father ringing in his ear but about to endure a wilderness just like Israel did. See, the story after the Red Sea is that there's a lot of disobedience, a lot of things go wrong and God's people forget who they are and forget who he is, what he has done. They complain, they sin, they eventually are punished by God, and he forces them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Next week, we step into Matthew 4, where Jesus will endure temptation in the wilderness for how many days? 40. Except this time, sin will be conquered, temptation will be resisted, because Jesus will rely on God instead of forgetting him. Jesus, in his baptism and throughout the life that he lived, He lived the life we should have lived. He retraces our steps of disobedience and changes them into steps of obedience so that when he died on a cross and rose from a grave, he would not only take our punishment and clear our record of sin, but would give us his record of righteousness. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became our sin so that we might become his righteousness. This is the good news of Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel, the message of the kingdom. Repent, turn back, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's a kingdom of grace and mercy and love and holiness and justice, not of condemnation, but of conviction from sin and even more than that, of salvation because the Savior is the one who walked the path before us. This morning, I do want to close with a story. Now, it's a little longer than most of the stories I tell, but I think it illustrates the grace of this kingdom and everything that I'm talking about with this, this taking the place of this love, this grace, the love of the king. It's a story, I'll give credit, that Hannibal shared with me that he came across. They re- we read it in a magazine, but I want to kind of edit it for time, but I want to read it to you. It goes like this. There once was a king who loved being the king. He loved what he did and he was good at it. He enjoyed the authority and the power of the kingdom, not because he wanted to just use it for himself, but because he could use them to use all that stuff to help his people. And his people were glad that he was the king. They praised him because he was actually a good king. One day, that king had a son. And the entire kingdom celebrated. And the the king, he loved his son more than his own life. He, He loved spending time with his son. He found incredible joy playing with him, especially after a long day of ruling and making decisions. But one day a particularly busy day, the king was late to play. And so his son did what all sons do when they have time to themselves. He decided to explore. Now, he didn't mean to get lost, but as he explored, he found himself in the forest that's behind the castle, and nothing looked familiar. At first, he would stay calm, believing that his father would come in time and save him. But as the minutes turned to hours, he started to panic. And in his panic, he ran. 
But in his confusion, he ran from the castle instead of towards it. In the forest, his clothes tore. He kept tripping and cutting himself on the rocks. Eventually, he was covered in mud and, and, and bleeding with his clothes shredded. He, he emerged out of the forest and wandered into one of the nearby villages. Admittedly, at this point, he looked a lot more like a beggar than a prince. But the little boy tried to find his way home. But every time he approached someone saying, can you help? I'm the king's son. I'm lost. They would respond either in mocking laughter or in sarcasm. Sure you are, kid. Most people ended up ignoring him eventually, and he ended up living into what he looked like, begging to survive. Meanwhile, back at the castle, the king is frantically looking everywhere for his son. He stayed up all night, but by morning, his worst nightmares had washed over him, and, and he feared he would never see his son again. But that didn't stop him. He dispatched his soldiers. He offered huge rewards to anybody who had any information. And yet the hours turned to days, which turned to weeks, months, years. In those years, the little boy grew up. And at first, he really thought he was the king's son. But, but so many people kept telling him differently that he began to think that maybe it was just a dream. Maybe he had imagined it all. And as the years passed, he forgot about the castle. He forgot about his heritage. Eventually, he forgot who he was, and he became someone else. He began to run with the wrong crowd, doing all kinds of evil, murder, thieving, anything that they could think of. Eventually, the young man became their leader, because even if you're not acting like a prince, you kind of still are a prince, and so eventually, your, your leadership skills kind of come out, and he was the worst kind of criminal in this gang, and so they unanimously selected him as the one who would lead them, and no evil was beneath him. Eventually, he became the most wanted criminal in this kingdom. But then one day, through a complicated set of circumstances that I won't bore you with, the king found out that the kingdom's most wanted criminal and his son were one and the same person. Now, he had a hard time believing that, but he kept checking his sources, and the more he learned, the more it became clear that he had actually found his beloved son. But when the authorities finally found him, the king faced a terrible choice. You see, the king loved his son fiercely, but he was also fair and just. The judge finally executed the uh, punishment for this son's crime. In the, in the court, he decided that his crimes altogether deserved death, that he would be executed tomorrow. Now, after the verdict was announced, the king's son was thrown into a judgment to await his execution. And that night, the king walked into the dungeon and sat across from his son, but he didn't say a word. For a long time, he sat just looking at his son in silence. Eventually, he interrupted the quiet. You are my son. His son's eyes glared defiantly at him, spitting back the words, yeah, someone mentioned that. But the king continued, have you ever wondered all these years where you came from, who your parents were? His son laughed, a, a mocking laugh, like, he, like, like all those strangers mocked him when he was a little boy. And he said, yeah, yeah, sometimes I might have thought about that, but I, you know what? I had a good life. Where I came from and who my parents were, it wasn't all that important to me. The, war, the words tore at the king's heart as he tried to continue, well, I have never stopped thinking of you, where you might be, what happened. You've always been on my mind. You've always been in my heart. His voice trembling with emotion, he continued while tears were running down his cheeks. He says, my son, I loved you with a great love. 
but you were lost, and I did everything I knew I could do. I sent out soldiers, I offered rewards, I never stopped looking for you, but now here we are. And tomorrow you were scheduled to die for your crimes. But the reason I'm here tonight is because I have made a decision. I've decided to set you free. And with those words, the king rose and walked up the stairs and into the night. The door to the dungeon hung open and the young man slowly rose in disbelief and he couldn't believe it. The old man had left it unlocked. He rushed out and with a cynical smile shouted into the dark, that fool, what was he thinking? He disappeared. Weeks later, the king's son found out what really happened the next day, how much his freedom actually cost. You see, the next day when he was scheduled to be executed, someone was executed. The requirements of the law were met. His own father, the king, had taken his place. He had died so that his beloved son could be free. Now that's where the story ends because the next question is, what do you think happened next? Do you think the son returned to his his father's castle and became king? Do you think he even cared about the price that his father paid for his freedom? Did he decide to change his life of crime? You see, here's the twist of this story. It doesn't really end because the ending is in the hands of the reader. Because the story isn't over. You and I are the son. The heart of the gospel is that God has come. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And he calls us to repent, to change our life. But it's, it's not just because the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's because the king of the kingdom of heaven has come near. Do you see him as he rises from the waters of baptism, identifying with us, identifying with our sins, identifying us with his righteousness? Would you see the one who retraced our steps in obedience and took our place in punishment? Would you let his sacrifice draw you to humility and to repentance, to repent, to turn away from the sin and to turn toward him? Would you believe what he says, that you are created in his image, you are dead in your sins, But he is the son of God that has come to live for us, to die for us, and to come back to life for us. Would you believe that he did what he said he would do? That he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Repent. Confess your sin. Agree with him and bear fruit. Live a life of repentance. Follow him in love and sacrifice and obedience. See his sacrifice for you and turn. Repent. The kingdom of heaven has come. The king has come and there is love in his eyes. John puts these images of judgment right before Jesus shows up. The surprise of the text is that Jesus doesn't go around judging everybody. He identifies with us. The rest of the story will tell us that he's actually going to be the one to take our judgment on himself for us. And so as we close, before we sing, I want to invite you into a moment of reflection, into a moment of prayer, that you might see the king who has love in his eyes, love that washes away our sins, and that you might give your life for him. If, if you're not a Christian here, the message of the kingdom today is that you might repent, that you might turn back from your sin and receive the life that he offers. But if you are the Christian, a Christian here, I, I want you to hear the same message and I want you to keep repenting, keep turning from your sin, not because you're worried about whether you're saved or not, but because a righteous life is a life of repentance. Life in him is about being continually renewed by the Spirit that we might look more like Jesus.
Let's take a moment, and then I'll close this in prayer. Gracious God, this morning we confess our sins to you. We acknowledge that we are who you say we are. More loved than we could ever imagine and more broken than we'd like to admit. Would you by the good news of salvation draw us to repentance and renew our lives? Do not allow us to drown in our sin and the condemnation and guilt and shame of our unrighteousness. Would you lift our eyes to you that we might see the blazing heat of your love for us? that burns away our impurities and washes us cleaner than we could ever imagine. Would you humble our hearts and draw us closer to you? May we see the Savior who walked the path before us, who obeyed where we didn't, that we might be saved from our own destruction. Jesus, we love you and we trust you. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.